Tis the political season. The Democratic and Republican primaries are in full swing, which means that if you watch the news, you're going to see that there are a lot of enemies, apparently, in the world. To listen to the conversation and the dialogue between political opponents, even within the same political party, you'd think that there wasn't anybody in the world who sees the world correctly. It is sometimes a really discouraging thing to watch the news. And I intentionally, uh, back in the day when I was old enough to register for a political party, because I was going into media at the time, thought it was my sacred duty to register as an independent so that I would not necessarily tip my uh, hand to anybody about what my political persuasion was. Uh, What I've discovered over the years is your unwillingness to do this uh, gets you characterized a certain way in both parties. I don't know if you are familiar with the term Dino. Uh, When I grew up, Dino was a dinosaur pet of the Flintstone family. That was his thing. And uh, it's a good impersonation of Dino in case you really want to check it later on the web. um, Also, there's things called rhinos. And these are Democrats or Republicans in name only. I thought it was sort of cute that... Uh, the Republicans have a thing, don't feed the rhino. Uh, what, what that means is, is that this is a person in either party, they refer to them as somebody who likes to call themselves a Republican, but they have absolutely nothing in common with the agenda of the Republican Party. They, for some reason or other, they fancy calling themselves that particular you know, political persuasion, but they have no convictions that would mirror in any way Uh, what it looks like to be a Republican. The same can be said. And if you'll hear people that are Democrats or Republicans talk about dinos and rhinos, they speak with such visceral hatred. And I always find it somewhat ironic that people in our culture, many of whom are some of the staunchest opponents of absolutist thinking, what I mean by that is they're, they're steeped in sort of a relativism that says, you know, there is no one thing that's true. We're all sort of finding our own way. My truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. I'm, I'm always sort of amazed that these same people manage to find a way to assess, assess truth and falsehood enough that they're able to call somebody a rhino or a dino. Uh, they would spend most of their free time, a lot of people in these political cultures, um, stating with clarity that no one can know the truth. And they would absolutely be opposed to the arrogance of people from the other political party. And you hear them say this, and they're just so offended by the number of people who would claim that their way is right. But these same people strenuously object when something happens that runs counter to their life choices or worldviews. All of a sudden now, the people who could not be judgmental become the most judgmental people in the world. Politically, you see this in our culture. People who would say, I'm open. I'm really not a judgmental person. When they get somebody who says something that they disagree with, You should hear them. I have some relatives. They breathe fire from both ends of the political spectrum about their political enemies. And all this to kind of sum and say that we in our culture and actually as individuals know deep down inside that we have a grid for right and wrong. Everyone does. Everyone has a sense that that's just wrong. Sometimes we can get everybody in the culture to agree. 
That is really wrong. Sometimes there's this great culture war where half the country thinks something's right and the other half thinks the other half is right or wrong. And, and this ends up being a great tension point. But everybody, deep down in their soul, knows that there is such a thing as truth and such a thing as falsehood. They are willing, when pressed, to call something evil. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, on 9-11... In 2001, there was almost unanimous support in our country for the concept of evil. So I think when we come to passages like today's in 2 Corinthians, or even an entire section of Scripture, an entire letter that we've been studying since the beginning of 2015, where the Apostle Paul is very specifically saying, you know, the Christian world, the Christian life is not just about do's and don'ts, It's not about morals. It's about truth. This is problematic for some folks. They run up against this and go, ah, you know, the Christian thing's really nice as long as it's kind of just help your homeless neighbor or be kind to little old ladies. Or, you know, if the Christian ethic itself goes beyond that to conceptual truth, things that would be right or wrong, This is where a lot of folks go, whoo, I got to push back against, I feel really uncomfortable. And and certainly there is quite a bit of pushback in our culture towards that type of thinking. The idea that you could say, well, listen, I can object. We can be respectful to one another, but I think you are wrong. Anymore, people go, that's just judgmental and terrible. Unless you say something that they object to, and then they're going to call you wrong. They may even call you evil. In this passage today, Paul is very clearly telling everybody, there have been some people in our church, there have been these men who came along, they are false apostles. What that means is that Paul would be making a claim that he is the genuine article, a true apostle. Make no mistake about it. Paul was making a claim to divine authority to speak for God He was claiming that his message, his truth was from God and his opponents, their truth was not. He was making a judgment about these so-called Christian false prophets, which he called false apostles and determined that they were just that, false. And it's what spurred this whole thing as these group of so-called apostles, they'd kind of anointed themselves apart from any official council in Jerusalem, apart from any genuine connection to the risen Christ, they had decided we're going to call ourselves apostles and we're going to put a new spin on all this. And of course, the Corinthians bought it. And Paul comes in and says, hold on a second, I've been to you a couple times and I'm going to make my third visit to you here. And and now I'm having to talk in a really strange way if you want to look back at the last couple of sermons. We've been talking about Paul's sarcastic edge and Paul speaking in these ironic and these paradoxical terms all to try to get the attention of this group of believers who he would say were being led astray. Now, this is what Paul would say in the first three verses of today's passage. Read this with me real quick. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I have been a fool. He's, of course, talking about the way he's been arguing. You forced me to it, which is an argument that has never worked for me in my marriage. You know, I know I'm a jerk, but you made me do it. So I would say don't apply that to your personal relationship models anyway. 
It's a freebie. I just threw that in there for fun. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. I have to point out a couple of things, just a couple of introductory thoughts about the framework for our discussion this morning. You you have to recognize that either Paul is right about him being an apostle, given the authority of Jesus to speak the words of Jesus because he saw him, and was confirmed by other apostles to have seen him, experienced him, and been given that authority, or Paul is wrong. You are forced in 2 Corinthians and in other places in Paul's writings to say, he either is the genuine article who's hearing from God, or he's not. The second thing you'd have to say in what we call the scriptures, and in this particular section of scripture, you see it most clearly, And that is the church in the first century was required to recognize the Christ-ordained apostolic authority, and that authority was to be obeyed. Now, let me make it very clear. We don't think this authority exists anymore outside of Scripture. So nobody in our church association, nobody that we would like or recommend to read is ever going to think that they have the authority to speak and then be obeyed. Uh, run from those people. They're creepy. All right. So we, honestly, if they're saying God spoke to me and you have to do what I'm saying, we have a problem with that. Unless they're saying, hey, listen, here in the word of God, this says this is true. Let's all follow the word of God. We're thinking that's pretty cool. As a matter of fact, that's what we would aspire to here at Prism Church, is to be a church that simply pointed to those whom Jesus appointed to speak truth. Jesus spoke and said his spirit was going to give them guidance as to what to say and what to write. Now, believers in the first century didn't get to decide on their own how they defined Christianity. They couldn't say, I'm a Republican. I'm going to define it however I want. I'm an American. I can be a Republican who is in every way, shape, or form looks like a Democrat, but I'm going to call myself a Republican. They could not, and if you'll stay with the metaphor here, say, I'm a Christian. I have nothing in common with what the apostles are saying is true about who Jesus is and about what eternal life is all about and about our condition as human beings, but I'm going to call myself a Christian. No Christian in the first century would have felt free to do that. They would have recognized the authority of the 12 disciples, well, the 11 that lived, Judas hung himself, story for another day, and, and, and then others that Paul said he was among, and the apostles actually in Jerusalem confirmed that he was set apart by God for this purpose. The Protestant church, born in the 16th century, it, uh, as, an, as, an, as a correction to what was some doctrinal differences they had had with the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy, had developed a concept that we still embrace today called the priesthood of every believer. There's a Bible verse for it, but I won't go there today. All that to say, the, 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 the baseline truth was that every believer was responsible to understand and interpret Scripture themselves. I can't go before God when it's time for me to see the Lord face to face and go, I didn't realize he didn't believe that. Brooks told me it was something else. See, that's not going to happen. 
I don't get to do that. Now, Brooks may be in some trouble with God, but that's his deal. For me, I'm responsible. We would say as believers in Jesus that every believer is responsible to take the word of God and then say, what does this, I am responsible as a human being to understand this. But at the same time, we are not allowed to just make up stuff. And in particular, we're not allowed to ignore the scriptures. Russell Moore, who's a social commentator, has said this about some so-called Christians in our day, that they have adopted what sounds like the same thing as the priesthood of all believers, but it's very different. He calls it a claim to the apostleship of all believers. Now, the apostleship of all believers means that individual believers can redefine Christian theology apart from Scripture, and they're okay with that. They go, oh, well, I just don't believe that. Well, does the New Testament say that this is what they said was the true gospel? Yeah, but you know what? I don't, and I'm still a Christian. We have a friend, Brooks and I do, who is a really devoted, charismatic, super Christian kind of guy. He was really like one of those guys that you hated being around at work because he was going to bring up Jesus in the like, most incredibly awkward circumstances forever, you know? It's like, oh, dude, not now. So he was one of those kind of fire-breathing, I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus kind of Christians. But we were glad he loved the Lord. And at some point in the last year, he's come to a different place of believing a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with the New Testament. And then he posted on his Facebook to all his friends, listen, I don't believe X, Y, and Z anymore, but I'm still a Christian. Now, again, you can believe something different today than I do. You can believe something different than the New Testament says. And I'll love you, and we can love each other and be friends and watch football games together and, and, and talk. And, and if you don't like football, we can figure out something else that we can do together. So it's not about love or respect. It's about correctly defining things and saying, how is it that we are going to define terms? There is in this generation a group of believers who thinks that it's okay for them to call themselves Christians and define Christian, Christianity and Christian theology apart from scriptures. In the first century, the apostles alone were the guardians of what constituted saving faith and correct doctrine. Their teaching is codified in what is now called the New Testament. And believers in Christ recognize the apostolic authority. We've talked about it. Dale and Dean and Brooks have talked about it in the Apostles' Creed class on Wednesday nights. We would say the Nicene Creed echoes this as well. These are creeds from the first millennium of Christianity that we believe in one holy, unified, small-c, Catholic, and apostolic church. We believe, as Christians that that first set of Jesus followers, the ones Jesus appointed as disciples, spoke forth and helped that first century of believers to know what was accurate gospel truth and what wasn't. And so what happens is then everybody saw that, recognized that authority, and then assembled what is known now as the canon of New Testament scripture. So what happens is that the person who would say, I'm a believer, but I'm going to redefine Christianity any way I want, is really getting into some territory that is dangerous. Like I said, friend, you can call it whatever you want. You can even call it Christianity because it's America and you can do whatever you want. But I have to tell you, there is a difference between biblical Christianity and a lot of what presents itself as Christianity 
in the world today. This apostolic authority that we treat Paul's writings as, and that effectively why I'm doing this very long introduction today, is because Paul is making a claim to having this authority. Hence, he's able to say, these guys that have come into Corinth, they're wrong. He couldn't do that, at least not in our culture, without everybody going up in arms. Paul is saying, I am going to assert my authority here. You say, does Paul have this authority? Did the other apostles, the apostle Peter, for instance, you know, the rock who Jesus loved, now, it, did he recognize this? And we say, yes, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. This is what the apostle Peter had to say about Paul. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures you therefore beloved knowing this beforehand take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity amen so you may say, I'm not a big fan of Paul. I, I don't understand a lot of what he says. Some of it is confusing to me. Apparently, it was confusing to Peter too. And Peter says, listen, some of the things Paul writes are really heavy. And people who are, and listen to the words of Peter, the apostle, the one who knew the grace of Jesus, the one who saw Jesus, the resurrected Savior face to face. He says, ignorant and unstable people twist what Paul says, like they do the other scriptures. See, so he, Peter, is even saying, Paul has been given, as the rest of us here in Jerusalem, James, John, the list of Jesus' apostles, given this authority to say, we are the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets. We're just the New Testament prophets. Now, as I sum up my introduction, and I have to say at this moment, my points are going to be very short today, so for you clock watchers out there, you're thinking, oh my gosh, he's just getting through the introduction. I'm looking at my watch here. Good Lord, we're going to miss kickoff. And so I just, uh, I want you to relax. Uh, my points are shorter than normal today too. But before I launch where I'm launching today, I've got to make sure we're all on the same page on this stuff here. We believe in our church and our association, the Protestant Christians that we hang out with, and I say we, it's our elders and our leaders here at our church, that the capital A apostle was designated by Christ and is no longer in office on earth. There are no people issuing scripture anymore for the whole world to obey. There are more no Old Testament prophets who get to say, thus saith the Lord, and then people on the other side of the globe actually have to do what they say. Now, there is a small a apostolic gift that we think is functioning. It largely happens with people who start missions and churches and all kinds of things around the world. There's an apostolic gifting that is spoken of in scripture that's very different from this authoritative office. Now, Roman Catholics think that the Pope has this authority. So if you're not a 
you don't understand the difference between Roman Catholic theology and Protestant theology. One place of divergence is on this whole issue of whether or not there was a continuation of Peter's authority apostolically. And Roman Catholics would contend that in the chair of St. Peter, that the Pope can still speak and it be ex cathedra for the whole world, and it's a rule, and you all have to follow it like it's the word, word of God. Uh, I mentioned the Pope because this week he was in America and uh, has been speaking, and we would say we don't think the Pope, at least in our strand of Christianity, we don't think the Pope is an apostle with a capital A. But where the Pope and Scripture are in agreement, we think the Pope is speaking with the power of God, the very word of God. So this leads us to today's two big questions, or the one big question that I'm going to answer in two different ways, very quickly. What's the purpose of apostolic teaching? I mean, why is Paul asserting it? Why is he saying, I'm right, they're wrong? What is the purpose of us saying the scriptures are going to be central to everything we do at Prism Church? Why? Is it because we're locked into a tradition? Is it because we're just so small-minded that we just think this little holy book has got all the answers to life and we'll find out how to fix our cars if we just read Leviticus enough times. No, we're not stupid. We recognize that the world and God has provided general revelation for a lot of great things and that people that don't know Jesus oftentimes tell great truth and fix great problems in the world. We have in the codified Old and New Testament, we believe the authority of the, the word of God. It is there for us. We call it apostolic teaching because in our text today, this is what Paul is asserting. You could just call it scripture. Today, I, I want to give you two quick answers. All right, the purpose of apostolic teaching is to show the love of the Father. That's the first purpose of apostolic teaching. And you see it in this passage, verse 14. Paul says this to the Corinthians. Here for the third time, I'm ready, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love this verse. Do you hear Paul's parental and pastoral concern for the Corinthians? He's speaking this hard truth not because he is right and they must be wrong, but because he knows that he is doing what is best for them and not for his own benefit. The slander against Paul with these super apostle opponents of his was that he was actually taking the people's money, but he wasn't asking for it himself. He was working and weaning his way through his like underlings and actually pocketing change. And Paul said that wasn't true. He wasn't a burden to them. He didn't get the better of them by deceit. He didn't take advantage of them. Paul was defending himself, but he wasn't defending himself just to defend himself. He's defending his teaching because it protects the sheep of God from the wolves that have slipped in to wreak havoc and confuse. Paul is saying to the believers here, he is saying to them, friends, I'm like a parent. I'm willing to suffer to take care of you. And I'm not going to be a burden to you financially. I'm going to labor so that I can tell you the truth. These people that have come in amongst you are wrong. They're deceiving you. And I'm willing to be as a parent. I'm going to assert my authority 
not because I just have to be right and you little people have to be wrong and how dare you question me? Don't you know who I am? He's saying what I'm talking about is a matter of life, death, and soul safety. False prophets are nothing new to Paul. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the disease-hardened tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This passage is not one given to Christians to uh, recreationally assess each other's Christ-likeness. Uh, when I hear people, and I've heard it in churches before, where people will use this passage and go, believers are supposed to be fruit inspectors. That's like a really corny, stupid thing to say. And it's actually a really stupid thing to say, apart from being corny, because this passage is about false teaching. It's about people who would come and say something that wasn't true. And the reason Jesus was so harsh is not because these people were just errant. They were trying to lead others astray. And so he would call them wolves. I don't know what you know about how wolves function, but they eat sheep. And he loves sheep. And wolves don't do well with coaxing. Hey, please, little wolfie, leave the pen. You've got to deal with wolves strongly. This is what Paul's dealing with in his context. He's saying, we got some guys in your midst who are teaching garbage, are taking you away from the grace of God into some strange stuff, and I'm here to tell you they're wrong. And I'm going to help you as a parent would help a child, as a mama bear would help her mama cubs. We've got a bear family in our neighborhood. And uh, I've beaten him recently, the little guy bear. He's actually grown considerably in the last couple years um, because I have put locks on my garbage cans. And now I, I jump for joy and leap with gladness when I go outside and I see that my garbage can has been tossed around the yard and yet is not opened. Victory. All right, so I actually, it's really sad. I do come in and brag to my wife and daughter. So uh, if you think I'm joking, I'm not. I'm really that weird. Anyway, so when they were little, they would come into the front yard. And we'd look at these bears in our front yard and we'd go, wow, the bear. And you could look up on the hill and you could see mama. And you didn't mess with her cubs. So we kept very distant from the babies. We'd say, hey, look at the cute bears in our front yard. Because you could see big mama up on the hill. You've heard it said before, you don't poke mama bear. See, a good parent does the same thing. You are watching out for your kids. You're walking around. You know, somebody messes with your child. You sometimes have to deal with them, if particularly if you have any sense that they're a danger to your child. You don't walk up politely and go, out of the, in, in the name of love and concern for you as a human being, may I ask you to be careful not to harm my child. You just open up a can. You got to do it. It's the right thing to do. It's not wrong. It is actually proper. That's what parents do because that's what shepherds do when wolves get in the sheep pen. They hide and pretend that they're sheep and they get in there and they chew people up and this is what Paul was dealing with. The Pope this past week was speaking to the United States Congress and encouraged them to create laws that protected the innocent, the immigrants, the refugees, the poor and the marginalized, the elderly and the unborn. 
I, I hope that our country can hear him because he's speaking the truth of Scripture. This is what he had said, paraphrasing the words of Jesus. Pope Francis said to Congress, our Congress, this rule, speaking of the golden rule, points us in a clear direction. Let us treat others with the same passion and compassion with which we want to be treated. The yardstick we use for others will be the yardstick which time will use for us. The golden rule also reminds us of our responsibility to protect and defend human life at every stage of its development. The Pope is paraphrasing Jesus, but he's speaking truth. He's saying, how do you think history is going to treat you if you mistreat the most vulnerable people in our society, including the unborn? The purpose of apostolic teaching is to show the love of the Father, and one aspect of God's love for you is to protect you, and that's what Paul was trying to do with the Corinthians. Second purpose, or really the goal of apostolic preaching, is producing renewal in Christ. Producing renewal in Christ. Verse 19, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved. All for your upbuilding. The purpose of Paul's strong teaching was not only to defend them from wolves, but to build them up in their faith. And this is why we look to Scripture, and in, as we would include Paul's apostolic teaching, to build ourselves up in our faith, to build our confidence in what Christ has accomplished for our benefit. We look to Scripture to be reminded of how gracious and kind Jesus is, to see the revealed Christ who deals with broken, humble people with the most care and concern you can imagine, with a tenderness that's amazing. And the hard-hearted, he deals with them challengingly, and he, he speaks truth to them. And in Paul's case, he dropped him on his butt, knocked him blind onto the ground. He loved Paul enough that he said, oh yeah, you think you're going to oppose me? You will follow me. So he blinds the apostle Paul and says, you're going to find out more about me in a little bit. Right now I'm going to ask you to go here and we'll work through your blindness and then we'll talk about some other things. I'm paraphrasing. But Paul, even though he was opposed to Christianity, was turned by a God who loved him. And see, God's word is that for us. His word, which includes the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, gives us a sense of his love for us. And this generation, and I speak of the generation Y, or you want to call yourself the millennial generation if you want. I'm, I, it was starting to happen in my generation, X, which is to say we got averse to reading but now they categorize it differently. You know, 20-somethings say, we're the generation of the symbol. We don't like to read. I'm like, yeah, well, that's a nice, convenient excuse when it's time to study. Won't you do my homework for me? Because I'm not really a generation that reads. Now, this is me as a professor of 20-somethings. I've got to tell you, speaking frustratingly. I will tell you that our aversion to the text, our aversion to reading aside, none of us can use that as an excuse for missing out on what God says to us, and most importantly, that it, it is a means of grace that the Lord would speak to your heart and tell you that he loves you, that he would reassure you with all of the authority of his powerful Holy Spirit in his word to tell you, you are beloved of mine, I am patient with you, 
I am slow to anger and abounding in love. All of these things are found in the authoritative word of God. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow came down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the word of the living God. The goal of Christ in coming to earth to save us was not simply to rescue us from an eternal damnation, although it certainly did that. The end game for God is the restoration of his original creation. God created human beings to flourish in a created order that was free from our sin, selfishness, and any disorder, chaos, pain, evil, suffering, death, and dysfunction are obvious in the world if you'll watch the nightly news. But they didn't exist before human beings rebelled against God. The world was perfect. There was no death. There was no chaos. There was no disorder whatsoever. Christianity is the new covenant between God and humanity. His effort to restore us to relationship with him and restore his created order so that he will be glorified and we will know the joy of living life as originally intended. So Paul's call in verses 20 and 21 are akin to what the Pope was doing this week, calling Americans to a different way of living, a return to living the way we were intended to live. In verses 19 through 21, this is what Paul said. For I fear that, per when, that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I might have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they practice. Now, I have to tell you, a lot of people maybe even a lot of people here, would agree with verse 20 with a lot of vigor. We'd be like, yes, there should be no quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, or disorder. I'm all for that. But then when verse 21 gets read, we're like, whoa, hey, don't get into my kitchen about sensuality and sexual immorality. Get out of my business. But the, the same apostolic authority that would encourage us to be kind to one another, to love one another, is the one that says, you know what? God has a plan for your sexuality. We now, by the grace of God, are given through the gospel all the merit we need to stand before God and be okay. One of the purposes of apostolic teaching is to get us through the grace and strength of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that pleases God by ordering our lives in, a, in saying it this way, the way we were intended to live initially. This is what's in play when Christians talk about the sexual ethic or we extract from Scripture that which Scripture says about what is right and wrong regarding our sexuality. It assumes, we assume as believers in Jesus that our notions of sexuality are bent, broken, and warped. God's original intent according to Scripture was that one man and one woman would monogamously engage each other in a sexual relationship. That would be the New Testament 
way of saying this is what is natural. This is what God had intended. It's how we were designed to work. But we live in a broken world. And we're all born into this world with a so-called natural human bent that apart from God's grace is at odds with the way God designed us to function. This is something the Pope addressed when he said, I cannot hide my concern for the family which is threatened, perhaps as never before, from within and without. Fundamental relationships are being called into question as is the very basis of marriage and family. God never intended for me to act like an animal and procreate wherever and whenever I felt the natural impulse to do so. And friend, he didn't either you. We cannot trust our natural desires according to the scriptures because they could be and likely are twisted out of their original shape. That's true for every one of us who walks the planet. This is a given in Christianity. Our sin nature is what necessitated Christ coming in the first place. One of the other things the Pope did this week was quote from Thomas Merton, a great Catholic philosopher. Merton said this, I came into the world free by nature in the image of God I was nevertheless the prisoner of my own violence and of my own selfishness in the image of the world into which I was born. That world was the picture of hell, full of men like myself, loving God and yet hating him, born to love him, living instead in fear of hopeless self-contradictory hungers. This is the conflict we all have. There's something in us by God's grace that wants to do what is right, but we all, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we're bent and broken. So how do we know if our desires have retained his holy imprint? By surrendering our understanding to the prophetic word of God. Jesus trusted the Old Testament and appointed apostles who by the Holy Spirit were told they were going to guide us into all truth. It was Solomon who said in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your straight make straight your paths be not wise in your own eyes fear the lord and turn away from evil it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones when i was a, a parent of small children there were times where we had to tell our kids to eat their vegetables and sometimes they didn't like it matter of fact we have a great story about how our son really burped up a a pile of mashed potatoes uh, uh, just because we were going to make him eat. Now, why would we make kids eat vegetables? Why not just give them cotton candy? Why not just give them what they want? Because we're their parents and we love them. And we know that it's healthy for them to eat well. The purpose of scripture, the purpose of apostolic authority is not to rule over us. It's to show the love of the Father for us, to protect us from those who would tell us, you know what, you can do this, it's not a big deal to God, and it would actually do great damage to our souls. One of the purposes of Scripture is that we would find life in Christ through them, that we would see renewal, and we would, by the power of the Spirit, begin to live the way he had originally intended for us to live and experience new life and new passion because we were saying okay this feels funny and feels different for me to live in a way that is according to scripture but very different than what I'm feeling compelled to do I would say I understand that that's the conflict that all of us face in one way or another 
Our nature is telling us, do what's in your best interest, what feels right, what seems natural. And scripture oftentimes is saying, I want you to trust me and live the way I intended you to live in the first place. Let me pray that we would know the grace of God to trust him to do that today. Father, it was a long message today, but one that's needed for us because we have to know why it is that your word plays such a central role in the life of the church, in the life of a community. And Father, why we would as a church encourage people to make the digestion of apostolic teaching, the Old and New Testament prophetic word, we would make that central to our spiritual health Your word says we're supposed to trust in you with all of our heart and not rely on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and you'll make our paths straight. Father, I pray for great health. I pray that we would know that you love us so that we would trust you like a father who cares for his children. I pray that, Lord Jesus, that you would actually empower the people of this church to trust more and more in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.